ask you, have you ever been in a situation in which you've had your breath taken away? Just a, wow. A while back, Christy and I had the opportunity where someone gifted us the chance to uh, helicopter down into the Grand Canyon and we whitewater rafted on the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. And for four days, our breath was taken away from us as we saw the awe and the beauty of creation. As we got to glorify God and seeing how he made even the most smallest of things and even the biggest of things. One night we laid there underneath the stars looking at the Milky Way and just being in awe of God. You see, it's this moment that God gives us these moments throughout our lives in which we are breathless. We're taken away by who he is and what he's done and we are in awe of him. Well, as we're gonna be wrapping up our sermon series, Good and Sovereign, today in the book of Habakkuk, we're gonna find Habakkuk in that exact place where he is in awe of who God is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. And if you don't know where the book of Habakkuk is, do not panic or fret. Your table of contents is a great resource. Uh, Don't be embarrassed or ashamed to turn there to get to the book of Habakkuk. We as a faith family have been walking through this minor prophet. Uh, We'll be after today, five weeks of looking at how God is both good and sovereign. Whenever suffering or trials or injustice occurs, often it takes place in the hearts and minds of people. Is God good or is he sovereign? For those who don't know the Lord and don't know the scriptures, they categorize God into one or the other. But as we've seen throughout the book of Habakkuk, God is both. God is good and God is sovereign. He is in charge of all things. That, and just like uh, Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch over all of creation in which God, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. That the Lord is in charge of every detail of every movement in the world. He is sovereign over every detail, and he is in control of all things, and he is working all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And he is sovereign in all of his ways, and yet he is also good. He is a benevolent and faithful God who is kind towards us and has shown his goodness and kindness towards us through the giving of his son. One of my desires and prayers throughout this sermon series is that God would give you a God-sized view of himself. That you and I would see him for who he is and be amazed by his character and his essence and his being. You see, we are a people who trust and rest in this good and sovereign God. And so when bad news comes, when we get the cancer diagnosis, when we get the pink slip, when we get the miscarriage, we do not panic or fear or wring our hands. Rather, we rest in the God who is good and sovereign and who is ordering all things by his divine love for us. So whether life is good or bad or ugly, he's faithful. And we can trust him. And as for Habakkuk, we saw back in chapter one where he was deeply disturbed by what he saw amongst his countrymen. He surveyed the landscape of the southern kingdom of Judah and the people were just full of idolatry and violence 
These were people who were worshiping false gods and they were treating one another with injustice. The poor were being taken advantage of. God would raise up the pagan nation of Babylon to attack them for their disobedience. You see, there was this point in which Habakkuk was asking, God, do you not see what's happening here? God, do you not care? And God tells him in chapter one, oh, I see what's happening and I'm going to respond and I'm going to shock you by raising up the Babylonians to attack my people. So Habakkuk's question went from God, where are you? To God, why? God, why would you use a pagan nation to attack people who are more righteous than them? God, why would you allow injustice to thrive amongst your people, but then you're going to use someone like the Babylonians to come after your people? God, why would you do that? Well, God answers Habakkuk's why. And as we saw last week in chapter 2, God pronounces, guess what? Judgment's coming for Babylon too. Make no mistake, God is does not appreciate and he does not take kindly towards those who take advantage or hurt his people. He's telling Habakkuk, get ready, because I'm about to do something that's going to shock the world. Not only am I raising up the Babylonians, judgment is coming for them too. Well, now we get to chapter 3, and Habakkuk is stunned in worship. He's in total shock of what the Lord has just said was going to happen back in chapter 2, that God's wrath is coming upon Babylon. And quite honestly, it puts the fear of God in Habakkuk. Chapter 3 is a song of Habakkuk in which he sings a prayer back to God in light of who he is, in light of what he has done, and in light of what he's going to do. So listen to the song of Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, according to Shigenioth. Okay, press pause. The word Shigenioth, we don't know what that word means. It just probably means it's a change in the rhythm of this song. But it's a passionate song. So here we go, verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him, and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Cushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and it lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed you crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. 
You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights for the choir director on stringed instruments. Habakkuk is stunned over what the Lord has just said he's going to do. He is in shock and awe over the promise of the wrath coming by the Babylonians. But you see, the intensity of God's wrath, quite literally, it put the fear of God in Habakkuk. So he concludes his book by singing this hymn, rejoicing in God's promise to deliver his people. This morning, I want you to notice in the text the sobering reality of God's character. I want you to see the sobering reality of God's character. After Habakkuk has lamented to God regarding the spiritual state of Judah, he's in shock of the pagan Babylonians coming to attack them. God has righted Habakkuk's perspective. And after hearing from God from his watchtower, Habakkuk is humbled. Look at verse 2. He says, I have heard the report about you, Lord. I stand in awe of your deeds. Now that the Lord has spoken to Habakkuk, he is brought low before the Lord. He is in total awe of God. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord, high and exalted, seated on his throne. And what are his first words? Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord. You see, there's an immediate sense of the weight of our sin. When you come into the presence of God, there's a humility that takes place. We get low before him. Habakkuk has just come into the presence of God, and here he is getting low before God. His, similar, or his response is similar to Job's in Job 42. When Job said, I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, when people come into the presence of God, we get low before his majesty. We don't flex on him. We get low before him. We don't lecture God. We are silent before him. At the end of verse 2, Habakkuk prays, in your wrath, remember mercy. That word for wrath, it means trembling with rage. Like a war horse snorting, lusting for battle, stomping his hooves that devour the ground. We see in verse 16, Habakkuk, he's trembling. His lips are quivering with fear, trembling at the wrath of God. Here we see where God's wrath is about to be poured out upon a people for attacking his people. 
The Babylonians are about to face this wrath of God and Habakkuk sees it's coming and he's like, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. God, remember that you are a God who is patient. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God, remember your mercy. Don't forget who you are. Reminds me of Moses when God told uh, Moses, I'm going to wipe out the Israelites. They're a stiff-necked people. They do not listen to me. They do not obey me. And what does Moses do? He gets low before God and he cries out for God's mercy. He prays, God, would you relent your wrath? God, please don't do this. Remember that you are a God of faithfulness and kindness. For us, we are those who do no longer have to fear the wrath of God. By his grace, God's wrath fell upon his son. Boy, is that good news for us. That God takes his righteous indignation towards sin. And because he is holy, he must punish sin. And he will. But rather than punishing you and punishing me, he punished his son at the cross. Jesus steps in and takes the full wrath of God so that it doesn't have to fall upon us. So when God is full of wrath, where do we go? We run to him. We go to the one and say, God, would you remember your mercy? And praise God, he remembered mercy for us through the blood of his son. This is where we go as followers of Christ. As Habakkuk sees what's about to come in the future, as he knows the wrath of God that's about to be displayed, he's crying out with David in Psalm 25, verse 6, God, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. So as God's character is is being revealed to Habakkuk, it sobered him. It humbled him. You and I must be careful that when we pray and we approach the Lord, we don't just peacock up to him. We don't just call him the big guy up in the sky. Remember him for who he really is. He is a God who's full of wrath, but by his grace, he doesn't pour it out on us. He poured it out on his son. And so now it's by Christ and through Christ we can now approach him. But let the reality of his character be sobering. There was this theme when I was a student pastor where t-shirts were made up that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And I used to tremble at that thought. Thinking, no, 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 no. This is the one who raises up kings and brings them down. This is the one who sustains the cosmos by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. Let us approach him with humility. This is a sobering reality that Habakkuk is bringing us to in verse 2. In your wrath, remember mercy. The second thing I want you to see here in the text is the stunning power of God's wrath. In verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk recalls not only the nature of God, but the deeds that he has done. When he prayed in verse 2, revive your work in these years, make it known in these years, he's remembering how God has worked in the past and then how he is at work there in the moment. In chapter 2, the prophet foresaw uh, the, the horror on the horizon 
the Babylonians with horses that are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves, were swooping in like eagles to devour God's people. But make no mistake, God is on his way too. You see, verses three through seven points to the truth that God is coming for his people. Verse three, God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Taman and Paran are mountain ranges on the southern border of Israel near the Sinai Peninsula. And so Habakkuk here is pointing to how God came up out of Sinai. God came up out of the south. When did he do that? Well, back in the book of Exodus. We see where God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and led them up from the south. We see where God brings his people. He delivers his people from the ultimate exodus out of the, the, the wrath and the, the control of Pharaoh. And then we see his power on display in verse 5 as both plague and pestilence, they travel with him. Just as Pharaoh and the Egyptians could not stop God's plagues, Babylon and the nations cannot stop God's power. Indeed, the whole earth trembles before God's power. Just as God has powerfully been with his people as they journeyed from the south during the Exodus, so now again, God is coming to be with his people. Have your parents ever given you the look I remember as a kid when my sister and I would be in the back seat of a car in a long distance trip, I would poke her and pick on her. And then my dad, he would snap his head around. His eyes would meet with mine. And he gave me the look. And that look, it let me know I'm about to go see Jesus. Verse six, God looks and the nations tremble. God is saying, I want you to know what my look is like. I look upon the nations and there is terror. There is fear. There is this reality of who I am. As the nations realize how God is working for his people, they're gonna be totally, utterly terrified before God. After Pharaoh and the Egyptian army were drowned in the Red Sea, Moses sang a song. And we see that song in Exodus 15. He says in verse 14, when the peoples hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. You see, word began to spread amongst the nations. This God of the Israelites is protecting them. He's going before them. He is coming for his people. But ultimately, we know this is true for us. That as God is coming, he is coming for his people. And everyone, the nations who reject him, they're utterly powerless before him. Beloved, hear me on this. God has not forgotten you. As you go through your trial, as you suffer, as you struggle, please know God has not forgotten you. And he is coming for you. You see, there's coming a day in which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back for you. And he's going to come and bring you to himself. We see this in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, where the apostle Paul 
lays out this. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Beloved, hear me on this. God is coming for you. And he's going to bring you to himself so that where he is, you may be also. You are not left here as orphans. You are not forgotten by the good and sovereign Lord. He's coming for his people. And one of the confidences we can have is we see in Habakkuk chapter three where God is coming for his people. He's coming to rescue his people. Behold the stunning power of God's wrath that Jesus is coming for his people. He's gonna save us. He's gonna keep us. I want you to see secondly here in the text, not only is God coming for his people, God is defending his people. In verses eight through 15, we see Habakkuk giving an Old Testament survey of how God has fought for his people. We see it in verse eight, how he split the Red Sea for his people, leaving Egypt. That is, the, as the Red Sea parted, they walked over on dry land. And then in comes the Egyptian army with Pharaoh. And as soon as the people got to safety on the other side, the Red Sea comes and crashes and envelops them wiping them all out. We see verse 10 that he has shaken Mount Sinai when he gave his law. Verse 11, he made the sun and the moon stand still for Joshua as they did battle against the five kings who tried to destroy them. In verses 12 and 13, we see how he protected his people, kind of like Joshua. And we see it throughout Judges and we see it throughout the kings where God would defend his people. We see this even in 2 Kings 19, where the Assyrian army that's already wiped out and sacked the northern kingdom of Israel has now made its way south. They're on Jerusalem's doorsteps and the people of God cry out to God and say, God, you've got to defend us. And what does he do? We see there in the text in 2 Kings where an angel of the Lord that one night went out and wiped out 185,000 of the Assyrian army. That God will defend his people. He is a God who is jealous for his people and he will defend you. He will put himself in harm's way to protect you because you belong to him. Now, some modern thinkers are appalled at the warlike characteristics of God toward his enemies. Husbands, let me ask you, what would you do if someone kidnapped your wife? And they took her as a slave and began to hurt her. Mamas, what would you do if someone took your child, enslaved them, and began to hurt them? What does justice require in that moment? Well, take that righteous indignation that you would have for your spouse, that you would have for your child, and multiply it by the covenant-keeping God. 
that God does not take kindly to those who attack and hurt his people. That God is the one who will defend his people. As the people were on the brink of crossing the Red Sea, they've got mountains on either side, water in front of them, the attacking Egyptian army storming after them, the people panicking, not sure, God, what are we going to do? We're going to die. This is not going to work. Exodus 14, 14, Moses told the people, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord fights for you, beloved. He is your mighty warrior. He is the one who will defend you. He is the one who will fight for you. And as the Lord has told Habakkuk how he's going to deal with the Babylonians in chapter two, Habakkuk praises God for his splendor, his brilliance, his power. No one can stand before him. He makes the earth tremble. And the good news for those who belong to him, verse 13, you come out to save your people, to save you're anointed. Well, God came to save his people 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. The mission had begun where God came forth. Jesus enters into the scene where he comes to rescue God's anointed. The anointed king comes to save God's people, to rescue his people. And he does it ultimately through a bloodstained cross where God's anointed king goes and gives his life for his people. The king becomes a peasant so that peasants can be treated like kings. The anointed one came to be with us and to save us from our enemies. Ultimately, sin, death, hell, and Satan. And all of them have lost, not only through the bloodstained cross, but because of three days later, the empty tomb. The empty tomb is God's proof that his son vindicated in the one who won for us the ultimate victory. But you see, that's not the end of the story as those who have been rescued by God's anointed son and God's anointed king, he promises to defend us even to the end of the age. For in Revelation 19, the apostle John says, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses. That's us y'all wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. For at the end of the age, the Lord Jesus Christ will do battle against God's enemies and he will defend us all the way to the end. You do not need to fear how the world's going to end because in Jesus, you're on the winning side.
You can celebrate Jesus for that. I talked to someone this morning who lost a voice because of their game last night. I think we can get fired up for Jesus, y'all. Our king is going to defend us to the end. You are no longer in danger if you are hidden in Jesus. If you are covered by his blood, if you've put your faith in him, if you've surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Paul describes what he's going to do to the enemy in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. He says, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. Jesus will defend his people once and for all. He's coming for his people. He's defending his people. Behold the stunning power of God's wrath. Thirdly, I want you to see in the text, the strength provided under God's discipline. The reality for Habakkuk is Babylon is still coming for Judah. God is going to use this pagan nation to discipline his people for their disobedience. And Habakkuk knows what's coming and there isn't anything he can do about it. Verse 16, he says, now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Can you imagine knowing that another nation is going to attack your nation, your community, your people, the people whom you love, the people of God. And yes, my goodness, they've got their issues. And yes, they're full of selfishness and foolishness. And yet you know you're about to be taken captive. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's where Habakkuk is at the end of chapter 3. He knows there's nothing he can do. Babylon's coming. God's made it clear. There's nothing he can do to stop what's coming. So since he can't stop the enemy from coming, what does he change? He changes his perspective. He turns this moment of fear into a moment of worship. Sad and discouraged and frightened as he is, Habakkuk is trusting in the Lord that even though life is about to get really, really, really bad, he's saying, God, I trust you. You're my joy. You're my strength. I'm trusting in you. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Though life was about to be painful and difficult and stressful, though the stench of death was about to consume God's people, though the enemy was about to demolish them, verse 18, yet I will celebrate. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. 
He is my rock, my redeemer. He is my strength. And so I am trusting in him. And though right now you may be jobless, you may have gotten the cancer diagnosis. You're not sure how things are gonna work financially. You don't like the situation that you have in certain relationships. Marriage is not going the way you planned. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. Change your perspective and take your pain and use it as a springboard for worship. Use this as a means of saying, God, I'm gonna glorify you in my pain, in my suffering, in my injustice. God, I am trusting in you. My eyes are upon you and I trust you, God. And my situations cannot take away my joy because my joy is not fixed upon a circumstance or a relationship or a person. My joy is in the Lord. My hope and confidence is in him. And when you realize that the joy of the Lord is your strength, you realize you can face anything because the Lord is with you. It's amazing to me. Uh, Even while Paul is imprisoned in Rome, chained to a Roman guard, he writes these words, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. You may be going through a trial, a hardship, something very difficult and painful right now. I wanna invite you to grab hold of the joy that is yours in the Lord, that he is your strength and he will make your feet like the deer climbing upon mountains that you can face the trial that's in front of you because of the God that is within you. You can trust him. And so as you go through the trial, joy is yours, strength is yours, because God is yours. In fact, it's your impact point. It's the one thing I want you to be challenged with this week. It's this. When the darkness comes, rejoice. Sing and trust in the Lord. This is where Habakkuk finds himself. After he's asked God some very big questions, after God has answered him with some very big answers, he finds himself with some really dark times ahead. Things are about to get really, really bad before they get good. And so it's in this moment that he makes up his mind. I'm gonna rejoice. I'm gonna sing. I'm gonna trust in the Lord. And when you see God for who he is, when you behold his sovereign character, it takes your breath away. You stand in awe of who he is because you know that you can trust the one who is good and sovereign. 